Thank you, Almeida, for going solo today. All by your lonesome. Did wonderful. And Joetta, wow. Good work. When I turn around and saw everybody smiling, that's what we want right there. Uh, when we're worshiping the Lord, we should bring a smile to your face, right? If we're a born-again Christian, my goodness, I see enough Christians doing this business. You wonder what's wrong, right? I kind of want to say, what happened? What happened to you? Are you okay? Right? We want to be sad every now and again. That's normal. But as we, as, as we walk with Christ, our walk should be happy. We should be glad, right? You know, that's an indicator when I see that, that you know, all the time. I automatically think they've, they've got no joy, therefore they've got no Christ. When you see that, that natural, you know, negativity or that all the time doom and gloom, something wrong, you kind of automatically think, well, what happened, right? Don't you have hope that's in Christ? Uh, and I was, I was listening to somebody this last week, and they were talking about how, how really how spoiled we are, uh, the American church, and we have every comfort there ever was. And uh, his main point was that when we talk about the hope that's found in Christ, we talk about uh, heaven, and we look forward to heaven. For Americans, it really doesn't translate very well, because every day when we wake up, we have the food that we need. Our lights turn on. We can go somewhere. Most of us can get the medical needs that we need. Uh, in fact, that we, have a, we live in abundance. We really do. Uh, and he was talking about other cultures, how other cultures, they really, that hope that's in Christ, it really means something to them. Because they live in a place where the average lifespan is, you know, 30 or 40 or 50. There's no medical care. Uh, they actually get to look forward to going to heaven. And so we kind of need to take that in perspective and say, okay, Lord, we live in a place that we live in great abundance. We live with, uh, even among us who we think we don't have much of anything, we really do. And to take that into our consideration and thank God you have blessed us. And even in my meager circumstances here in the United States, how awesome do we live compared to the world? God, thank you so much. And that right there should put a smile on our face. That right there should change our circumstance. So we're going to look in Colossians chapter 2 today. And you'll see in your bulletin the title of today's message is an answer to what we really should be struggling, struggling with, and we're going to look at two parts, uh, and this will be the first part is a, uh, a background, basically setting up next week's sermon, and I changed the title of the sermon, uh, and I couldn't change it on my notes for some reason on my, on my iPad, uh, the original title, and that's really small up there because it wouldn't let me make it big, uh, but on my original notes, the title was Struggling This Election Season, question mark. And this election season is by far the worst of my lifetime, maybe of yours, I don't know. I have not watched a single debate. And here's why. They don't debate. If I wanted to watch mudflinging, I'd watch WWE wrestling, and it would actually be enjoyable, right? Because it's fun. They get paid to say what they're getting paid. They both know what they're going to say, and could you imagine standing next to somebody that you agree, that you disagree with a little bit and saying the things that those people are saying to each other back and forth on the public arena? And we get all, we're all bent out of shape, right? If, you, if you're on social media, you see people saying this, you pe- see people saying that. You go to work and you hear people talk. 
We talk on the phone. We text about how terrible, how bad it is. It's bad. But we put that in perspective. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 2 today. And this right here is the struggle we really should be having. Because to be honest with you, whether this one becomes president or this one becomes president, or that third party, that guy from Utah, you know, becomes president, or the other one, I can't remember who that is, becomes president. In the scheme of things, it, it doesn't matter. It matters, it matters to our economy right now. It matters to the unborn who, who may or may not get more slaughtered or not. It matters in the temporal. But actually, when we read Scripture, God's Word tells us that He places leaders in place. Well, how can that be when this one's so evil? He's in absolute control. And to say that he's, well, he didn't want that one. It it should have been somebody else. That takes away from the sovereignty of God. And once we take away from the sovereignty of God, how big of a God do we actually serve when we say people in America can thwart God on an election? It's absolutely ridiculous. We look back on, on history and we think of the governments that have risen and that have fallen. God's hand has surely been in those. We are not special. We are not unique, although that we think that we are. God still reigns supreme. And so let's look to Colossians chapter 2, and then we'll look over at Revelation chapter 3. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is where we're going to camp out mainly on next week. Today we're going to be skipping around Colossians a little bit. We're going to be looking at some background and how that might relate to us today. So whenever we see that garbage on on TV or we see it on social media, just to make my blood pressure go up sometimes, I click on the political candidates on Twitter and I read their things that they say. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. Then I go back and read the Bible to get calmed down. To know that he's in control. Colossians 2, 1 through 5, and you'll see it on the screen above, and you have your Bible uh, in your hand as well. If you would, read God's Word, and whenever you read God's Word, and you're studying and you're listening to sermons, or you're studying your, your Bible and you're doing a Bible study, take your Bible, write notes in the little insert. That's why, we, that's why I do that. Uh, for you to, to, to write down notes that you might want to look at later. And then take your Bible and underline things. I promise you, there's nothing in the Bible that says you're going to go straight to hell if you underline and write in your Bible. Okay, Your specific Bible is not the only thing. You're not going to desecrate God's Word, right? But if you're not comfortable, then, then don't do it. But I promise you, it's not a sin, okay? Otherwise, I'm in big trouble because this one is completely marked up. Mark it up, circle the words, circle the pertinent words that you find. And as you go, whenever you study God's Word again, you'll see where you marked it up, right in the sides a little bit, and it helps you as you study. Because if you're like me, you can study something yesterday, and tomorrow, you're not going to remember a single thing, okay? That's just something you want to hear from your pastor. 
Let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And that's what we're trying to see right now, right? We're trying to be deluded. We're here, really, I'm saying it strongly. If I say it loud and strongly and passionately, it must be true, right? And that's how we we can get away with things. And now we can say things like, um, you know, that was hurtful. And we can get away with it. What you said hurt my feelings. And I need to find a safe space to go suck my thumb. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Father, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful as we gather. Lord, with joyful hearts uh, we can sing our, our traditional uh, hymns of old, we can sing newer songs to you, Father, that we can put a, that, that put a smile on our face because we are people uh, of you. We are children of you. And Father, we're thankful today that we can read a portion of your word and know that you are in absolute control. We don't have to lose our minds when, <laughs> when the government goes crazy and wonky, uh, Father, but we know that you're in absolute control. We know that uh, whenever things change with our uh, federal, state, and local governments that might affect our, our faith, our beliefs, our uh, personal economy, our businesses, that we can trust in you and know that you have absolute control over everything. Uh, and Father, we pray for our leaders. We pray for those who are against your word. Father, we pray that they would come to you in repentance and be powerful, powerful advocates of yours with your Holy Spirit living in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 14 in the neighboring town of Laodicea. And here in just a moment, I'm going to give you some background to the town of Colossus. And here is what John the Apostle is writing to the church at Laodicea. And this is a neighboring town. This is, this is very close to Colossus. I mean, it just as well be Nortonville. It just as well be to the church at Morton's Gap or the church at Graham, you know, whatever like that. So here's, here's the situation right here. We're going to talk here in just a moment about, about Paul warning the church at Coloss about the upcoming heresy. There's heresy coming into the church. Some of them are buying it. And here's what we see a warning to the neighboring town of what might happen if we buy into that. If we buy into the Hillary Trump business... Here's what's going to happen to us. He says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. Now he's not talking about uh, saved or unsaved. We translate this verse as, Well, I'd rather them not be a Christian. He's not talking about that. He's talking about usefulness. Hot is useful. Cold is useful. Lukewarm, not so much. 
I have these bottles of water in my closet in my office. They are lukewarm. I purposely chose to walk down to the kitchen and grab a cold one. Can you drink lukewarm water? Yes. Do you like it? No. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and I become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is relating to a culture that is kind of like ours. You might not feel it, but you are filthy rich. You are filthy rich. Whenever you go through your closet and you have to say, what should I wear today because I have so much to wear? You are filthy rich. Whenever you go, which box of cereal should I open today to eat? I've got 14 boxes of cereal in my house. You ever watch Seinfeld and he's got all those cereals up there? This guy, right? Whenever we go and we say there's nothing to eat, yet our cabinets have two months worth of food in them, never mind our freezers, right? I got my freezer upstairs. We got the refrigerator downstairs that we brought with us. That's full. And I have the chest freezer. I could probably supply hope to all for a week at my house. We are rich. I advise you to buy from me the gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. He's saying they have no idea. You guys at Laodicea and Colossus in this area, you don't even know. This applies to us as well. You don't even know. And that we're going to leave here and we're going to get all worked up. Right? I can tell you who's going to be the next president. Right now, I'll give you my opinion. And we'll get all worked up. Right? We'll, everybody be spinning in the seats, right? And we'll have to get the fire extinguisher to calm some of you down. Right? Calm down. We'll leave and leave church. But Toby said this. Right? We won't eat for three days. He says, we don't even see. Put the eye salve on of the gospel. We're the white garments of the gospel. Be refined by the fire of the gospel. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous in what? Does anybody have their Bible out? Repent. Turn from your ways. Right? Don't worry about it so much. Repent of that sin, he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. We use this verse a lot with evangelism. We say, hey, if you accept Jesus in your heart, here's what happens. He's saying when you repent of your sin, this is what's going to happen right here in Revelation. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, heavenly throne, not the earthly one where we have to get so far from the big, big white house in Washington, D.C. as to not upset them. I have overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, we are a local church. God's word is speaking to us. Do not lose your mind. Vote how God tells you to vote, but don't lose your mind. It's okay. It is okay. Let's look to 
Colossians. We'll get some background for next week. And we'll see a few things. A little background of this. Paul probably wrote this book around 60 or 61 A.D. Now, let's give a little more background on this. Around 61 or 62 A.D., there was an absolute huge earthquake. Now, Paul wrote this letter to this church that's struggling with some incoming heresy. They're kind of doing their business, right? They're kind of falling away from God just a little bit, and Paul's writing them, correcting them. He's never been here, but he's hearing about what's going on. About one year after he writes this letter that goes to Colossus, it goes to Laodicea, it goes to the surrounding areas, this place gets absolutely leveled. And we know this because history... All the archaeology, all the historians, it basically Colossus shuts off at 60 or 61 or 62. There is nothing else about this place. There is it's ruins. There is nothing. In fact, Laodicea was leveled. They, they raised that back up a little bit, but it was never what it was. So we think about America. We wake up Monday morning. I'm going to do this. Tuesday, we've got our annual meeting. Wednesday, we've got church. I'm looking forward to preaching next week. We might have something terrible happen that we will never wake up for. And we are losing our absolute minds over something that might not even happen. Right? What about the people at Colossus? We think that we're different than them, but we are not. They were struggling with the same things that we struggle with. And here, maybe a year or two after Paul writes this epistle, writes this letter to them, they are no more. They scattered. Their city was just leveled. This was located in a very fertile valley. They were known for their black, glossy wool. Whenever they, people saw black, glossy wool, they automatically thought of Coloss. What did we have? What kind of factory did we have here in White Plains? The tomato cannon factory, right? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows about the tomato cannon factory. Y'all remember when White Plains had the tomato cannon factory? You, just like me, I don't know. How old do you have to be to remember the canning factory in White Plains? It's a real question. I don't know. Do you remember? So it's older than you. But all of us know it, right? You never saw it. Well, I guess the building, I don't know if it's still there or not. Your your grandmother worked there? Right. And all all that history like that, right? Like we look at White Plains, and I hear all the time, we all, all, uh, the people of White Plains, we all talk about how, there was, I don't know how many grocery stores there was, there was this, and we talk about it like we lived it yesterday, right? Like it was last month. And how it is now, it's, it's not like that. It's just not. We go to Massonville, we do our thing. Uh, so this place is not unlike ours. It was in a place that could produce. They had animals, they could do their thing, they produced all this black wool, and they sent it off, and people knew it, kind of like I'm sure the people knew in this area I don't know how many years ago, 60, 70, 80 years ago, whenever somebody said tomato cannon, they think, oh, white plains. Okay. Now, during this time in history, whenever Paul wrote this epistle, there is an absolute serious decline in the economy. What's that remind you of? Mine's about like now, right? There's a serious decline. People started moving out. The trade routes changed a little bit, so kind of like here, right? What was one of the big deals that came through here that helped the economy here? The train, right? Whenever you take away the train or whenever you put in the penny rile and people quit using 62 to go to wherever they go, 
that absolutely kills an area. I remember we were in uh, Paris in Henry County, and they decided to build this, um, this bypass, and it was going to go around whatever, and it cut around the town of Henry in Henry County. It went around it in the country, and they went in the fields to make it big or whatever. That absolutely killed Henry. Henry was finished. I mean, they were done. All the, the businesses, the restaurants, every, the banks, everything, just, just like that, just quit. I remember watching that, and the people were just whining like you wouldn't believe. And I thought, well, move, right? Well, that's where they live. But they couldn't accept the reality that that street, that road, it ain't moving. It's not moving. And so what do they do? They sit in their house and complain incessantly about something that ain't changing. What do you do? Does that relate to now? We complain incessantly. We get on Facebook and social media and we let everybody know what we think. We put up our signs, we do all this stuff, and it's important that we go vote. Don't hear, me, don't hear me wrong. But when we have that wrong attitude, when Paul's saying, here is the struggle, this is what I struggle for you. Not for this, but for this. Now, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, we see how he got the letter from one to the other. It says, as to all my affairs... Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's saying, I wanted him to come to you so you could know how we were, what was going on with us. Where was Paul at this point? Does anybody know where Paul was at this point? He was in prison. He was locked up. He was locked up for the sake of the gospel. And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So Tychicus and Onesimus brought the letter from prison to the church at Coloss and most likely surrounding areas. Now what we learn in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, is the fact that this entire letter is written about the preeminence of Christ. Christ is number one. No matter who our president is, Jesus is king. The preeminence of Jesus. You want your trades going downhill, people are going around the town, here comes an upcoming earthquake, he didn't say that. Things might get bad here in a little bit. Y'all are fighting? Jesus is king. Colossians 2, 6-7 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, notice the word received in this version right here. And I think the, everybody has the same word received, no matter what version, except the NLT. I think it has accepted. If you have the NLT, it'll say accepted. This word received, whenever they, whenever they received this letter, it was written in first century Greek, and that word for received, they would understand it as meaning, you got this from tradition, right? It's not like you just got it. It's like you have whatever you have for Thanksgiving at your house, and you guys do a certain thing for Thanksgiving, you know, Uncle so-and-so and always comes, he tells the same stories. This one comes and brings the bad whatever that no one eats, that they all pretend they want to eat. 
you all watch the same football game, and then everybody watches the Christmas story. Right? And you have those traditions, and the kids who come up learn those traditions. This is the word that he's talking about here. The apostolic tradition that I have passed on to you. You've received this. Received the gospel. Verse 7 wraps up this idea. Being rooted up and built up in him. Strengthened in the faithfulness as you were taught. Overflowing with thankfulness. Whenever we receive Christ and he is number one. He is the preeminence. He is the first thing that we think about. He is the last thing we think about at night. It's going to be overflowing with joy, right? So the sad Christian, the depressed Christian that lives that way, the negative Christian, that shouldn't be. That shouldn't be. There are times when we're sad. There are times when we're depressed. There are times when we're negative. But when we look at our span of life, when we look at our span of a week, we should be more joyful We should be the most joyful people there is. We should be ridiculously, hilariously joyful. And when I turned around, we did our amazing grace this morning, and we had to sing to this side. The majority of the people were smiling. right? And then we had some that were doing this. And then over here, too, the majority of the people that were smiling. And then Maya was doing this. She wasn't doing that. I'm just teasing But guys, that's how we should be with the gospel, right? It should be joyful. There's something wrong when we're not. There's something wrong with our spirit. Maybe there's something wrong with the spirit of the church. Now, Paul writes this letter because they were approaching some dangerous heresy. And we think, okay, heresy is relegated to the the weird churches, right? The ones who are just... I could name one, but I'm not going to. That big, big church in Texas. That's just super, super weird that they teach weirdness, right? Or these books right here that Paul writes to to watch out for weirdness. But the truth is, is that we are always, as a church, susceptible to heresy. I mean, we're one bad teacher in our church away from the church falling into heresy. We are one Ten-year pastorate, ten-year block of time, five-year, two-year pastorate away from falling into serious heresy where it affects the whole body. And as a church, we've got to filter everything through God's Word. You remember that last week? What does God's Word say, right? Does God's Word say that? And that's what we need to say to folks. Hey, what is it? does God's Word say that? Let me, God's Word says this, though. We are dangerous when we're falling into that. Colossians 2, chapter 2, verses 8 through 23. Bear with me as I read this large section here. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And yes, our executive, our legislative, and our judicial branches. And in him you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of all your flesh, 
He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Every single one of them. Isn't that nice? One of the discipleship books I read says that Satan condemns in generalities. God convicts in specifics. He'll tell you specifically what's wrong, and Satan will just say, you are a loser. So whenever you hear you're a loser, you're bad, that's Satan throwing, just kind of being super general. God's Holy Spirit says, you did this that's wrong, and you need to repent of that. For when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, uh, over them through him. Therefore, no act is to, uh, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in regard, respect to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding of you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement in severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, did I just read that just to read something to take up time? No. We're going to look at this and say, okay, in this culture, there are Jews, there are Greeks, there are Frisians, right? So it's a mixed culture, kind of like what we have today. Well, we're looking at our congregation today, and we have a 100% Anglo congregation. Did I miss anybody here? Even with a 100% Anglo congregation, we have mixed cultures within our family units. At my house, we have a Yankee living in with a Southern lady, right? And so because of that, we have Yankee traditions in our Christmas and our Thanksgiving that my wife has fully embraced. She has more Red Sox shirts than I do. She loves Plymouth, Massachusetts. As a transplanted Yankee, I now do things that my Yankee friends don't do. Uh, whenever I see a dead deer on the road, I think, oh, that was wasted food. And my Yankee friends get a little sick when they see that, right? When I see a squirrel, I just want to kill it. And my Yankee friends think, oh, isn't that so cute? I want to eat it. So a little bit different. So same thing now. Look at our worship in our church. Uh, my generation I think of everything from 1990 to 1700 as traditional music. Some of you have a different 
definition, but we're probably not but a couple generations or decades off. 1990 to 1700 is traditional. But in fact, the songs that we sing, a lot of them were extremely cutting edge at the time. And in fact, churches would fire their minister of music for playing such that we love. And that some of the younger people will go, well, that's old. You know, it's 200 years old. Well, it's extremely cutting edge. We've got some music from that came out of the Jesus movement. We've got some that came out of the Civil War. We sing Negro spirituals in our church. When two or three generations ago, we would not do that. So even with our music, we kind of mix culturally. So here's what's happening in the church at Coloss. What they were doing was having a trend that I like to call religious soup. They were having a trend called religious soup, and we do this in our churches. Religious soup is wherever you take whatever you can find spiritually and throw it together as long as it sounds good together. And every now and again, we've got to correct that. We've got to say the Bible says this, and we have to stand on this. And maybe we let something go a little too far. And as a church, we've got to go, you know what, we've got to repent of this as a church. And as a church, we've got to stand on God's word and say, okay, how do we get back in a line with God's word. So, we'll look at a few of these, and then we'll close for today and pick back up in Colossians chapter 2 next week. Within the verses that we read just a moment ago, we have evidence of Greek speculation. So we have the Greeks coming in and giving their influence. Colossians 2 verse 4 says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Persuasive arguments. Look back to chapters uh, 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, That their hearts may be encouraged, having knit together in love, attaining all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He was saying, Church, I want your hearts to be encouraged. You're not looking for anything extra right here. There's no speculation. We know because Christ gave it to us. He specifically said this. Believe on that and not what's coming in from the Greeks. What we want to do, though, and we do it today, is we look for secret meanings in God's word. You know, one of the worst things you can do, what you can do and allow your friends to do, is take the numbers in the Bible. You can take the chapters, numbers, and the verse numbers and build some kind of a crazy secret meaning on those. If you add this verse and this verse, and you cut the Bible in half, and you do this number with this, and it gives you this verse right here. That's crazy. Did you know the numbers in the Bible weren't inspired? They were added later to help us out when we're reading, so we can all go to chapter 3 and verse 2. Did everybody know that? Okay, good. If you didn't know that, you know that now. Those numbers were not inspired. Right? So we can't build a numerology type of theology on those numbers. Right? If you add this chapter and this verse and it tells you this right here, don't do that. It's wrong. There is no secret meaning in the Bible. If you want to find a secret something or another, go to YouTube and just type in Bible and secret. And there's all kind of nuts and whack jobs out there who are making videos to tell you about the latest secret about when Jesus is coming again. Guess when he's coming? When he's good and ready. Right? What about the end times, Brother Toby? It's happening. Right? There's my revelation theology right there. 
Jesus said he's coming, and he's gonna, right? Boom, roasted. Okay, we see Jewish legalism, Colossians 2, 11 through 17. And in him you are circumcised and circumcision made without hands. He's saying this because they're believing in their circumcision, like, hey, I did something. I got, I got this. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith, the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were made alive together in him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And it goes on with a little bit more. He's speaking specifically to the Jewish heresy. He's saying, hey, don't trust in all of that. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the food, what you can't eat, what you can't eat, can and can't eat. He's also talking with a little bit of oriental mysticism that has made its way over here. Colossians 2, 18 through 23. Church, what we have to do is be careful not to make our faith and our spirituality a mixture of a Kentucky Burgoo of sorts, where I like this, and I'm going to drop it in there, and I like this from this church, and I'm going to drop it in here. Pastor so-and-so says this, and I'm going to drop it in here, and then we mix it, and we get something that's tasty to our mouths, but Scripture says, I'm going to spit that out, because that is not the truth of God. Weigh what God says. We look to our election and we struggle with this. Not our election, but the election that's coming up in November. Do what God tells you to do, but don't wring your hands at night. Right? God's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of your family. He's going to take care of your job. Well, you don't know how that's going to affect my job. You know, I don't. You know, I trust God that he can take care of it. He's taken care of it for 2,000 years, so I'm pretty sure he can take care of it today. Friend, if you're here today and you can honestly say that you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, it's my encouragement to you that you would bow your knee before him. The Bible says that we are, every single one of us, man, woman, adult, child, are going to stand before him and give an account of our sins. We're going to give account of ourselves. And I'm going to tell you how it's going to go. We're guilty. You don't have to guess. You are. You're guilty. You're going to stand before him a guilty sinner. And we want to have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. We want to put on the gospel. We want to put on Christ so that when God sees us, he sees us forgiven. What we do is we repent of our sins. We say we humble ourselves. We say, I'm sorry to God. We put on Jesus and say, I believe on you. I confess you as my Lord and Savior. And then we actually follow him. Our life has changed. The Holy Spirit comes on us. And we are different. We can't help it. We can't help it. Father, I thank you for this day and for this time. We get to worship you and we get to study a bit of your word, especially within the context of the church at Colossus. Father, I pray that as we study again next week, Lord, that we can see that really we don't have to wring our hands with, with, with what's coming up, uh, that we can vote according to what maybe your word says the best we can. Uh, and know that you are absolutely in control. If things don't turn out like we would hope they, we, they would, that uh, we can know that you're in control. Uh, whether or not our economy stands or it fails, uh, you love us, and you still want people to come to know you as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that as we uh, respect our government and we respect our leaders, help us not to have the bad mouth. 
Help us to encourage other people to go exercise their uh, right to go out and to have a wonderful attitude as we go. And Father, I pray that, uh, that we as believers would exemplify that to other people. Father, I pray for those who are here today who might not know you as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray for some who may, who may just, I don't know, just play with it a little bit or toy with it. Father, I pray that uh, you would convict them. Father, I pray that there wouldn't be a hardness of heart uh, and they could come to you before it's too late. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.